Welcome to the show, everybody. My name is Pete Wright, and I'm here with Dane Christensen. Hello. And Megan Strand. Hey. And we are the Naked Marketers, and uh, thank you so much for downloading the show today. We really appreciate it. Visit uh, www.thenakedmarketers.com to download the, or listen to the show and make sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes. It's free, and it's the best way to uh, make sure you don't miss a single episode. Today on the show, we have a, an absolutely fantastic guest. We are lucky and, uh, and uh, deeply honored, shall I say deeply honored, to have the uh, founding developer of WordPress, Matt Mullenweg, uh, has agreed to join us and talk a little bit about uh, WordPress, what WordPress does to the publishing community, and, and uh, what is in store uh, for WordPress as a, as a platform for uh, uh, telling your story on the web. Uh, it is a, a great discussion about um, uh, about getting your website out there in a way that's easy and can enable even more people in your organization uh, to take part in your own story. So we're we're uh, hang on, we'll get through the drivel that comes from the three of us <laughs> uh, next, and then we'll have the Matt Mullenweg interview. And then we'll and blow the podcast world away. We will blow the podcast world away. That is absolutely true. Uh, and that's it for the for the morning plug. How are you guys? Fabulous. Do you hear that? There's a boat. There's a horn oh, of wow. a boat in the background. I actually don't I hear that. And I was going to say, oh. I am tired this morning because I don't like Peter on East Coast time. He's like all chipper and happy, and I'm still <laughs> drinking coffee. <laughs> I know, it's totally noon. I am ready for lunch. Peter I've already have got a glass of wine out. soon. It's one o'clock, around four o'clock, it's one o'clock, and that's when we hit the porch. We're here in Chautauqua, New York at the Chautauqua Institution, and it's, you know what, can I just tell you, it's photography week at Chautauqua, oh, so and awesome. um, and the, the folks who, who have come across, uh, I mean, you know, as a photographer, I go gaga over these guys, I'm a complete fanboy. And uh, uh, Steve McCurry is a guy I've been I've just idolized for many years. I mean, these this this guy's images have been in my head for years. Uh, he's the guy who took the the famous uh, Afghan girl image with the the striking blue eyes that was on the cover. Oh of National yeah, Geographic love that picture. Ago, so famous. So I mean, his portraits are just totally iconic. And um, and he's uh, so he he gave a wonderful talk. And you know, more than anything else, I got to shake his hand and <laughs> and and just you know. Tell him how great did he is. Did you geek out? I totally geeked did you, out. Did you go Ed, Ed Cashy is another one who is, I mean, these are guys who are real. I mean, they've spent their years chronicling, you know, um, uh, real strife and, and struggle around the world. And Ed Cashy said something that was so terrific. I mean, here's a guy who has spent his time, in, uh, you know, documenting for decades the Kurds and, and Kashmir and, and uh, you know, Jerusalem. And I, I mean, he's just been dealing with struggle and, and documenting struggle through images. And he said, you know, I get this guy who comes up to me and he says, you know, you were here in Afghanistan 10 years ago, a guy just like you. And, and he asked me to take, his, to take my picture because it would help raise awareness and my life would change. And my life hasn't changed. What, why should I let you take my picture? And he said, you know, at first I was like, wow, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why you should, but then after I collected myself, I said, uh, you know what? If you'd stop letting guys like me take your picture, then you'll lose the entire drumbeat of the conversation. My job is to keep that drumbeat going so that more and more people will recognize and, and be aware of what trouble is, is really happening in your world because they don't get to see it. Oh, and if you, if you close that curtain completely, then it's gone forever. And, and I really resonated with that. I mean, it was such a powerful message and it just kind of, you know, you get so stuck, 
in I think in all careers probably you get this where you just get this sort of myopic and and I think so much about ad photography and and how can I you know use my work to you know, sell things and tell stories that help people sell things and sell image and uh, these are guys who have almost completely let go of that and and you know they they really use their work to tell a higher story and it, it was just such a powerful reminder of of you know other uses of the medium that was it was really incredible uh, that's well, amazing. Sorry, sorry to be so deep when you guys no, are it's, still. It's, so it's amazing. It's just an amazing place. So we we look forward to yeah. more reports of fabulousness yeah. from Chautauqua. Uh, so, but we do have news this week, don't we? We do have some Tell news. We have some news. Let's, Let's do. talk about it. Let's talk about Old Spice. Okay, okay, so I'm excited about Old Spice because it worked. There, <laughs> there's been this big brew. <laughs> do you, you don't have that smell of of uh, sweat anymore. That's what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> that Old Spice worked for you, Megan? Is that That's what you're awesome. saying? I did not actually buy any Old Spice. Strong enough but, uh, for a man used by a few women. Yeah, I don't I think that's a different brand. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> it um, works, though. So Old, Talk about why it worked. Old Spice, uh, their sales have increased 55% over the past three months. And then in just the past month alone, um, they reported 107% sales incre increase over their, I'm sorry, for their Old Spice body wash sales. So that's um, very exciting, and it's just been everywhere. It's very so, exciting. Um, it was funny because some of the earlier reports referenced a drop in their sales, a 7% drop, but that was for a different product, the Red Zone After Hours, which <laughs> I have no idea even what that is. That's right. Maybe if Old Spice Guy would have mentioned the Red Zone After Hours, it would have gone up 107%. Maybe it would have. And maybe well, can you, why, why do you, okay, so just to recap, that if, for those who haven't, and I'm, you know, I'm here in Chautauqua, and I'm here with my in-laws, and they hadn't seen the Old Spice Guy. I mean, you think we, we get, it's so insular. We think, oh, everybody's seen the Old Spice Guy. What, what exactly was the campaign? Um, well, they did some YouTube videos with the Old Spice Guy. Um, and Peter, you can talk about. Not the actual Old Spice Guy, which is an old sailor with a blue <laughs> captain's hat this on. very sexy black man. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, what was his name? Isaiah, Mus Isaiah Mustafa? Mustafa, Mustafa, I think his name was. He's a, he's a retired uh, running back, I think. Mustafa. I just said. Yeah, um, and it was done by Wyden and Kennedy, and they just had these phenomenal viral videos that transported him from you know, dropping out of the sky onto a horse to, you know, riding. I, I can't even remember what the original videos well, were. They were amazing. And, and there were, um, yeah, there were three and they were originally for broadcast. I think, I mean, they're originally, they were, they got more traction online, but I think they were originally part of the TV campaign. Right. The, I'm on a horse hit, ad. I'm on a horse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. So it was Super Bowl. TV it was and Super then Bowl. YouTube. And so you're, you're right. That's where it started. Um, yeah. And now, just recently, um, he started recording these based on tweets. He started recording these very customized, individual, very short video clips on YouTube, addressing these Twitter users. And the Twittersphere went crazy with these with these videos. And they did very good job targeting sort of high profile and interesting people. And um, so I, I think that's probably what the 107% increase was. On you know what I think well, the, the lesson is there, what I like so much about it. I mean, the one thing is, yes, they got huge distribution of a very clever ad. Uh, and, and again, if you haven't seen it, search for Old Spice, I'm on a horse on YouTube and, and watch this ad. It's brilliant. But what, what I think is so powerful and what probably, you know, was, was so illustrative of their success is responsiveness to the people. Exactly. Uh, the people started tweeting to this Old Spice account and the Wyden and Kennedy team, the creative team, 
and uh, Mustafa got together in studio and recorded almost real time uh, 75 video responses in a day. And, uh, and those were the video responses they were uploading in, almost in real time. So people would tweet, and within an hour, there'd be a video response from the Old Spice guy. And I think that level of kind of commitment to the message is, that's what's novel here. I think there's a lot that isn't novel. There's a lot that's just clever and creative. But that level of responsiveness really is novel. That's, a, that's perfect, Pete. And that's the thing that's, this will be... Uh, you know, this is sort of interesting news, uh, you, you know, in the advertising or the business section of a, of a paper, but I can tell you, uh, you know, the, the boardrooms of, of the big uh, Madison Avenue um, ad agencies are having all kinds of brainstorming sessions here because on the one hand, um, uh, you, you know, you have advertising in a time of, you know, a down economy when not everything is working beautifully, but here's one that on the surface, didn't cost a ton. This is pretty low-tech, pretty low-cost um, production. Um, I mean, just in terms of, the, I guess, the technology and, and the broadcast of it, um, but but blew up product sales in a very measurable way. So it's this is getting a, a ton of attention, and there are going to be a lot of attempts, not that there haven't been before, but I think we're going to see a lot more attempts to try to recreate this for different brands and try to capture that magic and you know, uh, mostly it's like quirky. How do you make it viral? How do you make it funny? How do you address a very specific target audience? Which is partly, I think, why the Old Spice ads worked. They were good at hitting a, a demographic. But Pete, you're right that with without that critical element of of being interactive and pulling the audience in and and feeding, I think, the need that um, consumers have because of what we've grown accustomed to with social media. Um, and, and comment boards and review sections on product sites on Amazon, et cetera. But the ability to sort of interact in some way and, 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 and be part of it, um, it's, it really will be interesting over the next few years to see how different products and companies um, are able to do that successfully. But I think, it's, there, I think there's a huge demand for that in order to really have successful campaigns. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, and I think they just really illustrated it. I, I think your point is is well taken that they've sort of, you know, raised the bar, so to speak. That, um, you know, they've already done this level of responsiveness with videos to people's tweets, and so that won't be novel anymore. Mm -hmm, right. So what's what's you know, what's next? It, the it, Old Spice guy is actually going to show up to your house. And and there's uh, and there's not I would a love formula. That. Yeah, I'm sure you would. <laughs> <laughs> the, the funny thing is, there's, there's, or the interesting thing is, there's not a formula here um, that uh, that will be, I think, easy to replicate. I, I really, what I really think we'll see are a lot of fails uh, yeah. over the next year or two. I think, and they are going to be funny. Yeah, yeah, I think there'll be a lot of examples of, wow, that didn't work. Wow, but boy, you know, they, they tried be to be responsive and really did show up to somebody's house. <laughs> And we're arrested in the process. Okay, well, that, that's been done. It's called Publisher's Clearinghouse. That's right. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, but yeah. they come with a lot of money. So they come with a lot of money. That makes up for it. That was never real time. Or maybe once <laughs> primetime special it was. But these publishers, they could take off on that one. Make it real time. Put it on the web. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's going to be, I think, uh, I think it really will be very interesting to see. Uh, this, it, it, what we know for sure is that this Wyden and Kennedy um, raising the bar here with Old Spice is absolutely not the end of attempts to do viral campaigns similar to this one. And right. it'd be very interesting to see who does it well, where the bar goes, you know, how, how this evolves and who really fails at it. It'd be very interesting to watch.
really fails. <laughs> yeah. Fails bestest. <laughs> gonna that be was fun. the best, bestest be failure fun. ever. Well, there's there uh, are no failures well, like uh, that are they're quite as gruesome as these sort of guerrilla viral marketing failures. Sometimes it's going to be truly horrible, gruesome and embarrassing. You know, uh, we speaking of gruesome failures. Although I don't think the jury is completely uh, uh, back in on this yet, but the Times, uh, uh, the Times of London, the Sunday Times, has lost not almost ninety percent of its online readership, according to a recent uh, uh, recent aggregation of data. I don't know if you can call it a survey, uh, but uh, it's it's not looking terribly good. And this is, I you know, I know we we have a lot of publishing to talk about, and so we'll kind of make this quick. But the the bottom line is. Uh, uh, last year, Rupert Murdoch came out and said, "You know what? This advertising thing—people are changing the way they get content. We can't, you know, we can't. We're not making any money. The bottom's falling out of the newspaper industry. So we're going to put up a paywall in front of our uh, Times uh, UK website. So you, if you want to get in, you have to pay, and it's like um, two pounds a week if you subscribe um, to the the Times and the Sunday Times That's online." Expensive. It seems expensive. It's like, what, five or six bucks a week? I, I think I think that's well, about like three it. Three or four. But, you know, if you get, um, you know, they they have very strange money abroad. <laughs> uh, so you know, I, I I don't know. I I think there is there is some value to paying for content, and and people will pay for good content, and they will also not pay for good content if marginal content is available for free elsewhere. And I sort of think that's probably what happening, what's happening here with the Times, that uh, you know, they've lost a lot of their online readership, which means, as a result, they've sacrificed a, a large percent of, percentage of their uh, ad viewers, because this was a hybrid approach, right? You were going to pay to get in. There were still ads inside. Uh, so now the, the floor is falling out of the ad business as well. So you know, what does this mean? Uh, have you guys had a chance to percolate on this? I have. <laughs> Let's well then. I did, let's, I let's did just a slight amount of percolating here. Do do tell. Well, a couple of things. One, I feel for the industry. I mean, I feel like um, I I feel a little sad uh, with what is very a very logical statement you made, Peter, which is that people will go for free, of course, and if it's if the quality isn't quite as good or if they can, you know, whatever. I mean, if it's just so much more convenient, they're going to go for free. Uh, and I feel like publications that truly have quality, quality content and, and journalists and, and um, I don't want them to go away. I mean, I want them to really, uh, um, you know, uh, have a good business model and exist and I want to have access to them. Um, but there's so many sort of logical points here like, gosh, you know, if I don't really want to throw out the money to have a single news source, because once you've put money towards it, you've kind of committed Really, right? I mean, if you're if you're if you're paying a subscription to a, a newspaper, um, then that's kind of you're not going to probably pay five or ten. You know, you're not going to browse a bunch of different news sources if you've kind of committed money in a direction. That's a hard thing to do when we're talking about the online environment. The other thing is. Um, these papers lose in a lot of ways when they start doing this. They, they lose with search engine optimization and people driving traffic to their sites by linking these great stories. So there's, uh, you know, I, it, it, it's not an easy question, really. Um, and I, I don't know how much their revenue model really needs to change. I, I, I don't know all those answers, but, um, but they lose a lot when they put up a firewall uh, relative to driving, um, you know, high amounts of traffic and having broad readership. Whether they make that up in the subscriptions they get, you know, I, uh, 
I, I hope something works out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good, good luck time. Good luck. No, I, yeah, I think there's definitely, I mean, there's something there and part of it may actually be that more major publishers need to do this. I mean, the New York Times has, has gone back and forth and, and it seems they've made a strategic decision to remain the paper of record. And to your point, to allow people to deep link into their content area and, and you know, make sure that if you want to find out the facts of a story and post it on your blog, you end up posting links back to the New York Times. And that's kind of been a, 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 a mainstay of, of research on the net. And the Times has just turned that off. They've strategically gone the other way. And, and, I, and it's I not think just that, blogs. I mean, you know, with the growth and things like Facebook and Twitter even, the, right, the, right. T- Twitter is a place that people will absolutely push a link to a story Right. Uh, all day long, and it can drive massive amounts of traffic if you don't right. have a paywall. Right. So, is this just a question? Was this a UK experiment, or? Well, the Times is, you know, it, no. It I mean, it was. It, they've done it before, but Murdoch said, you know, his he owns a lot of properties around the world, and he has said this is where they're starting. And okay. so they started with the Times, and and it's going to come elsewhere. And, and Murdoch is by far the most clueless, like clueless, <laughs> literally. Not just I'm not just making an assumption here. Literally on the record as being clueless about search engine optimization and how the internet actually works. You well, should, that's, you that's, that's a fair point. That, he oh, is he's he is unhelpful. on the record. That that is a true thing. He is on he is on the record. <laughs> the guy doesn't even use a computer really, right? I, yeah, I, mean, right? I think that's he's actually on the record with something like that as well. Like he really just sort of ah these kids and blah blah blah. Like he'll he'll say statements like that. Not that he's a dumb guy. I'm not saying this man isn't smart, and can't run a business, but off my lawn. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Literally doesn't understand. Like he 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 accuses Google of basically writing on his back by posting uh, links to stories on his media sites. So right. if, if Google posts in Google News, uh, you know, a Wall Street Journal story, which they don't do anymore because of the paywall, or uh, Fox News, Google's essentially driving traffic back to those sites. But in Murdoch's mind, it's like, well, Google, man, we wrote that story and they've got it on Google. What are they doing with that? Like, literally, that's how he thinks about it. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Crazy, I tell you. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I think his Wall Street Journal paywall will probably work for him. I'm not sure any others will. Yeah. With their It'll change sites. the tone and tenor of the journal, too. I mean, it becomes a different kind of publication. Um, anyhow, moving on. What Anywho. else do we have to talk about? Did we want to talk about the uh, Forrester research? Or were we sure. going to skip right over that? Let's, let's, well, now let's talk about it. It'll be a quick one. Because okay, who, quick. who of you two are using Foursquare? Wait, let me guess. <gasps> Megan. And not me. Uh, okay. Yes. I, hmm, how do I even explain this? Well, let me ask this. I sort of use it because, and the o- I will tell you, the only reason I do is because I feel like if this takes off bigger than I think it will, specifically via Foursquare, I feel like I should at least be versed with it. So I use it maybe a handful of times a week. I but I'm not checking into I'm not checking into Trader Joe's. And... I I use I use the hell out of it, and no, I use the hell out of it. I do. No, no, no. I do. I use it every day, multiple times a day, and I use it specifically. And I don't ever check in publicly because you know you can check in without shouting it to your friends. I use it to become the mayor of really obscure places, like, <laughs> like the my street house. corner, like your house, <laughs> like I'm at a kiosk right now in the middle of a street. And and you find there are people who are like me, there who are who are checking into places like what does that give, stu- what does that give who, you? Who are like stupid traffic on the highway, 
check in. No, you're like a you're like an obscure dog marking exactly. obscure territory. So what does exactly that, what does what that give is? you? Nothing. It is a waste of my brain space. I okay. totally acknowledge that. It is a total waste of space. As a matter of fact, I quit Foursquare for a long time because it was yeah, taking too. up too much space. And then I came back for the exact same reason you just described. And now I do it only because I want to see how many badges I can get. <laughs> I am I am one of the people, in fact, who is devaluing the overall value of Foursquare. So I can't imagine it's going to last very long in my uh, tool. It's I can't even call it a tool uh, in in my box of things that occupy me. Well, makes I'm, you seem like a tool. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like it, doesn't it? You need a tool belt. That's anyway. Well, okay, but so, there's an, an but the point story of it is goes with this is that uh, Forrester Research uh, issued a report, and really this little infographic that we'll put on the show notes pretty much cap- captures it. Eighty-four um, percent of people surveyed say I am not familiar with such applications, and let's see, I use I them not from this or less frequently is one percent, so that would be me. Um, and then here's your Peter. I use them more frequently than once a week. One percent U.S. online adults. So that's right. They're literally they're coming out and saying marketers should avoid advertising on Foursquare because not enough people use them. So that's right. essentially the gist of the story and the research um, that came out. So I don't. And I think the point of the article is that probably Facebook and Twitter may be in a better position to use um, geolocation services once they figure it out so you well, know Foursquare, and yeah were all all these play, all these extra little i'll bet um, foursquare was big at comic-con though oh yeah sure it was well it's, it's yeah at conferences but i think you're i think that article and your comment there are actually absolutely right i think if you add geolocation to facebook it will Done. take off. I mean, it, it will be, the the race will be won. Although uh, I think there was another, I'm not sure if it was in this article or another one. The point was that um, Facebook, uh, oh, it was in this one. Facebook appears to have blown it. And they're talking about, you know, the geolocation brouhaha has been around, um, you know, the privacy issue, people robbing your house when you're reporting that you're not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the what they're saying is that Facebook sort of blown the privacy issue. So maybe they're not best place to to handle that location component yeah well they've got other other sort of privacy eggs to fry right at the moment so they they also have they also have 500 million users yeah i think that was announced this week too so it was announced this week so you know it's more than a few more than a few that's right very interesting little bit of news i don't know if it's very interesting you guys weren't so sure how um uniquely interesting this was you uh, pete thought this was absolutely predictable to have happened but um but we're able to say it out loud right now uh ebook sales on amazon have just recently passed hardback sales on amazon and that's in spite of the fact that uh, hardback sales are up um let's and I guess another little fact, they've been selling hardbacks for 15 years. They've been selling Kindle books for 33 months or ebooks, however you want to call them. Um, but yeah, the ebook sales are, are, are up and hardback sales are up. Ebook sales over hardback sales. I think it's interesting. And I think we were talking a little bit before, uh, um, before we got on about this whole dynamic and about you know, ebook sales. And you know, we've mentioned um, already on the show a couple of issues with, with publishing um, and how things are changing there. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, when we when we get into these, um, you know, who's up and who's who's down and what format are people after, I don't think um, you slice it a hundred ways and still come up with the fact that people are reading more content more often from more sources than I think ever before in the history of the planet. Boy, is that ever true? I mean, Amen. it's certainly true for for me. I uh, 
Well, and you know, I was a Kindle user. I was a fanatical Kindle user for about 17 days. And then the rumors you picked up about the iPad. Than that. Well, I was a fanatical Kindle <laughs> user for 17 days. I was a Kindle user for about three months. And uh, I eventually got tired of the slow performance and the slow page turns and the and I, I didn't like the grayscale and the rumors picked up about some Apple tablet. I got very excited about that. And boy, I have read and and I, I think the qualifying uh, factor here is I have purchased more books, ebooks on the iPad, whether from Amazon as Kindle uh, formatted ebooks or iBooks um, uh, from the Apple iBook store uh, than I have all in the past, you know, five years combined, uh, which, you know, I have to imagine I'm not alone, That's but the, the, the bottom line is I really enjoy reading on these things. And I, more than anything else, I enjoy uh, having all my books there at once. You know, I don't think I can do this show anymore because every time I get on, it makes me want to buy an iPad. Well, then you should just buy an iPad and, <laughs> and put yourself out of your middle. I know. There are more than one ways to solve that dilemma. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, maybe I'm um, maybe I'm different, but I sure love reading on my digital device. Oh, that is such a perfect segue oh, into the next wow, story. Thank you. Well, there you go, Dan. I will tell you, yeah, Wired Magazine uh, did a survey uh, with my, my type. Uh, 20,000 people and uh, concluded that iPad owners tend to be wealthy, sophisticated, highly educated, and disproportionately interested in business and finance. All seem like good things, but also scoring terribly in the areas of altruism and kindness. Six times more likely to be wealthy, well-educated, power-hungry, overachieving, sophisticated, unkind, and non-altruistic 30 to 50-year-olds. Wow, dude, you're like uh, that's rich. So, that's that's BS. Those my type <laughs> people should be beaten about the head with iPads. Yeah, I mean, twenty thousand people could no. they have? That's well, the, I, okay. Here's the one thing. First of all, probably there there may be something to that, but uh, I also think that the kind of people who take surveys like this are probably exactly the type of selfish elites that um, uh, that have the time to. Stop reading their iPads and actually take stupid surveys like this. Well, and also, you know, we, we know this is true of demographic uh, research. Take any, you know, any sort of demographic type that you can sort of corral in some way. And it's just not hard to come up with um, unflattering uh, adjectives if you had to, right? right I mean, right. it's, uh, and who knows the questions. And I, honestly, guys, this to me is very likely the exact same thing we talked about last week and I think other times before where um, you, you know you're you're doing your trending topic thing where you what's yeah. a trending topic well the iPad is still hot well, let's do a story on the iPad well how about this one let's have it be controversial yeah we can five, do that five ways the iPad can kill you while you sleep <laughs> exactly we'll continue to see regurgitation on this kind of thing as, you know as long as the product is hot or the topic is hot or the celebrity is hot and you've got to have something controversial. The headline on this one, iPad users are selfish elites, study says. Who's not going right. to click on that and read exactly. it? Exactly. You did. iPad did. maniacal mechanical genius is planning to take over the world. <laughs> no one's going to click on, ah, iPad users seem to be a lot like the rest of us with maybe a little more money because they could afford the device. That's right. iPad users read books. <laughs> that story won't get clicks. That's right. Not only clicks, well, but comments, which are... It, you know, a critical thing when you're talking about uh, advertising revenue and online media. Indeed. And on that note, you know what I think we should do? 
Anybody? Bring smarts, perhaps? Bring Let's smarts. do it. Can we do that? Let's bring the smarts. Our guest to the show this week, we are just absolutely thrilled to have uh, the good, talented Matt Mullenweg uh, join us on the show. Matt is the uh, founding developer of WordPress, a, a tool, a platform that is close to many of our hearts uh, and behind many of the sites that uh, allow us to communicate so effectively to our audiences to this very day. Uh, Matt, welcome to The Naked Marketers. Thank you so much for joining us. Very glad to be here. We, uh, I'd, I'd like to start uh, because a lot of our audience may not be more on the technical side and, and understand what the back end of a website particularly looks like. I'd like to start if you just give us a little bit of a rundown uh, on, on what WordPress is uh, and, uh, and how folks are using it today. Sure. Well, when WordPress first started seven or eight years ago, it was a blogging system. Um, I just needed, I had my own blog at the time. It was, uh, I was posting photos and sharing links and, you know, the stuff that personal bloggers do. And I was frustrated with the software. So I started uh, working on things and that eventually became WordPress uh, in collaboration with some other folks around the world. As WordPress evolved, people love the simplicity and ease of use so much that they wanted to use it not just for their blog, but for their whole website. And so that's the direction we started to go in probably about three years ago. And so today, people with WordPress 3.0, which is our most recent release, you can use it to run a blog, uh, uh, your entire website, if you like. And people have made some really beautiful websites on it. And we recently uh, merged some functionality that allowed you to run a whole blog network. So the software that we use to power WordPress.com, which hosts, I think, 12 million blogs now, is the same software that you can download and install with one click on almost any web host in the world. That's uh, that's amazing, uh, amazing growth in the last seven years. Can you can you remember the first person you pitched WordPress to? <laughs> it was probably my friends. Uh, a lot of my friends who I had gone to high school with, I kept in contact with that summer. And then uh, as we all went our separate ways into college, we still remained really close. And so since the beginning, there weren't very many users of WordPress. I just set up blogs for all my friends. I think there were about five of them. And because none of them were particularly technical, uh, I got very early feedback on the things that were too difficult or hard to understand. And uh, how does it transition? I just, I'll tell you where I'm going here. So much of what we talk about on, on this show is about how organizations uh, can engage the people that they need to to uh, you know take ownership of of their brand and their process and the the tools that they offer. How do you engage in in uh, you know in in the products more deeply and and become take more ownership of it? And so when I'm thinking about that transition of your efforts as sort of this solo developer developing this tool to run your own website and you having to kind of pitch this to other developers to begin to take ownership. And then other developers working with you to pitch this as a tool that really can work for websites. I'm so interested in the key moments that help, that, that allowed you to transition from you as a one-man uh, development operation to Automatic, the, the company that sort of is, houses WordPress. Does that make sense? Sure. So. Luckily, I was never all alone. I don't recommend doing anything alone, actually. Um, uh, good advice. I like that. <laughs> when, I, uh, when I first had, when I was first thinking about WordPress, or thinking about, actually, there's a prede uh, predecessor software to WordPress called B2, which I was a user of. And um, 
that was an existing open source project. And I was thinking about doing a fork of that. And I blogged about this. And a guy named Mike Little left a comment on my blog saying, you know, if I was serious about it, he'd like to work with me. And he's the co-founder of WordPress. We ended up working together on what became WordPress. Um, the evolution of other, I, I have to correct you there, because Automatic does not own or is not the parent of WordPress. They're actually oh. completely separate. Um, but the evolution was basically that, you know, as Mike and I did things, we, we were just sort of, you know, doing every possible job. We were writing the documentation, making the website, helping people out on the forums, everything. And I think that sort of early passion just inspired other folks to get involved because you know, most people contribute to open source because it's fun. So when they see people having a good time and working on things they love, if it's an area they're also interested in, they'll just naturally gravitate for contributing. I'm sorry, we're breaking up on that last little bit. I want to make sure that I don't lose you here. Oh, sorry. I said they just naturally gravitate towards contributing. They they naturally gravitate toward contributing. This is one of the one of the comments you made on on um, in a recent interview is a passage that really struck me. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on on how this um, how this has played out for you. It's a it's it, it's this, on this idea of collaboration. You said the first time I was really surprised by this community was when some users in Japan downloaded the software and replaced every English string with a Japanese translation. I installed it and it was surreal. All of the layout and buttons looked the same, but there was this beautiful exotic script gracing everything. It was like a dream where everything is familiar, but all your friends are speaking a language you don't understand. The idea that someone halfway across the world would contribute so much time and thought to the project was very humbling. Oh, that's probably the most poetic thing I've heard in, in months. That's beautiful. <laughs> this is beautiful. This idea that these people are contributing without your involvement directly at all at this point is is uh, it's it is it is a beautiful thing. What does that mean for you? I think you just said it. It's a beautiful thing. Well, that's I love too it. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are we letting him get away with that? That's such that's just so deep, actually, Pete. I hadn't read that passage actually. <laughs> All right. Uh, the this uh, what does it mean for you that the that WordPress is is free software? And I, I you know I, I I ask that question couched in in the more sort of traditional kind of stereotyped MBA uh, uh, question, which is you know when you say free software, it means free software, and how could you possibly ever make a dime on free software? And here you are, this team of people, building these absolutely wonderful tools for other businesses to use, and you're giving it away. And, and actually, Pete, can I follow that up? With yeah. Just, I, I mean, Matt, I'm so curious. It's actually your most recent blog post on, uh, is it? It's mat.tt, uh, uh, and you've got this thing in in parentheses, uh, and I just. This is what really piqued my interest in this, where you say, as a businessman myself, I think it's an excellent approach, sometimes regardless of license, to give away something for free or, or to do something no cost. And honestly, I, I teach uh, a marketing class every now and then, and, and, and uh, it's something that's never shown up in the textbooks yet. But of course, it's, it's, uh, uh, you, you know, it, it, it really is uh, a very interesting trend of freeware and, and, and free as a pricing model. Um, you know, marketing textbooks uh, haven't quite um, had, you know, come up with chapters yet on free as a pricing model, but it's actually become a very successful pricing model. I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't go into like, hey, 
uh, uh, Matt, we want to talk more deeply about the, uh, about that from a marketing perspective. Other than you use the ter- the phrase here on this uh, most recent pl- post uh, as a businessman myself, and so I, I really am following up on Pete. Very curious in in uh, you know y- your feelings about free as as a, as a pricing model. Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll answer those in order. Um, when we talk about WordPress being free software, we're actually doing kind of a, a geeky thing where the free is not about the price. Um, it's about freedom. So they say free is in freedom, not as in beer. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And so open source and the GPL license that WordPress is under in particular has sort of its own bill of rights. Uh, there's certain things that sort of inalienable rights that no one can take to, from you that govern the things you can and cannot do with the software. So for example, you can use it for any purpose, commercial or non-commercial. You can say anything you like. I can't tell you what you can or cannot say on your blog. You can modify it. You can redistribute it. You can give it to your friends. There's, there's sort of a lot of things you can do, which we take for granted because this is becoming a lot more popular. Open source is really becoming ubiquitous. But the vast majority of software in the world is under a proprietary license, which doesn't allow you to do this. So that's what we talk about. The free that I'm really most passionate about is that. Um, price is is a different is a different approach. Um, I think it's probably best it's founded in Chris Anderson's latest book, which was called Free. Uh, have you guys had a chance to read that? Yes. Yeah, it's a it's a terrific uh, it's a terrific read. Whether or not you agree with it, it's uh, you know, it is a terrific read. Yeah, and so for any listeners who are curious about the concept, he can describe it much better than I could. But uh, how it how, how it works in the WordPress world is probably you know the business analogy would be uh, you know giving away the razors and selling the razor blades. Um, the core platform is free and open and and available to lots and lots of people. And how uh, folks make money around it is just services. So sometimes that's hosting. So for example. You know, the millions of web hosts in the world or WordPress.com, which is one that automatic runs. It's in, you know, one of the first services I made was called the Kismet, which is an anti-spam service. You can sell designs or consulting or, you know, there's just almost anything around it. But basically what you do is you assume the code itself is a commodity. And so how can you create value? How do you assume that that's ubiquitous? Sort of target economics of abundance versus economics of scarcity with regards to the code and get as many copies of the code as possible and then sort of create value from that abundance. You do kind of speak poetically, Matt. I he really does. Like it's, that. it's super <laughs> impressive. Well, and this kind of leads to this kind of leads to my question. Um you had responded to somebody's um I think it was a comment on on a post with an entire blog post of your own about um, you know, uh, you say in this comment, through the freedom intrinsic in the GPL that has allowed people to abuse WordPress, it has allowed even more people to do amazing things. And over time, the good far outweighs the bad. Um, and then you go on to say, if you accept that the bad people are going to be bad, then the real question becomes, how do you maximize the effect of the good instead of treating them just like the bad? And I just, that is such a powerful philosophy to me. And I think it's sort of the crux of, of what happens, especially from a marketing perspective, this, you know, opening it up and being okay with the fact that not everyone's going to use it for good. Um, but that if you're supporting the people that are, that are doing the good work with it, that outweighs the bad. So I have two questions around that. And my first is, um, is that, are you seeing that becoming more of a common philosophy or is it, is that still pretty rare in your mind? And then my other question is, is that, 
ever hard for you? I mean, is that, do you ever have days where you're like, yeah, that's my philosophy, but man, today that's hard. <laughs> well, first of all, you have to send me a link to that because I don't remember saying that, but it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's very poetic. I'm happy to send you the link. <laughs> um, yeah, certainly that is what I believe. It's a good characterization of it. And um, some days it is hard. I mean, absolutely. Because, you know, WordPress is at its core just a tool, so it can be used for, for good things and bad things. And it breaks your heart a little bit when it's it's used for bad things. But it's kind of like that, uh, you know, you hear the phrase, like, I might not agree with what you have to say, but I'll defend your right to say it. And so that's sort of the approach I try to take when I see WordPress being used in ways that I would not personally endorse. Um, I'm happy to contribute to an environment when people are able to express themselves in that way. And in fact, one of the core philosophies and goals of WordPress has always been to democratize publishing, to open it up to the masses. And there's going to be, you know, all sorts in there. That that brings up uh, one of the, you know, sort of fascinating positions that I, I, you know, in watching your interaction with these core publics, you know, your the the WordPress development community, the WordPress theme community, the WordPress, you know, the legal community that that exists and underlying these different approaches to licensing, uh, and then of course the the business community that exists on top of it. You really have have become something of uh, a, a celebrity. Um, if that's the right word, a celebrity endorser of the GPL uh, and and a, a major kind of voice box for this free software, open software community. And that seems to put you in, in kind of an interesting... Uh, interesting uh, crossroads of arguments that continue to to exist and flourish online about how people use WordPress, how people are allowed to use WordPress, and and uh, and those who have, have gone south on some of WordPress's core beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your impression of the, the general state of the WordPress economy? Do you, do you feel like your efforts uh, to really set the standard and, and be the standard bearer of how WordPress is used really uh, it has, has come to fruition? Or, or it, does it equate what you always wanted it to look like? Yeah, and I should probably do some background for listeners who aren't familiar with it. Remember I talked earlier about the freedoms that the GPL affords. The only restriction in the GPL, it's a big one, but it is the, it is the only restriction is that things you create on top of GPL software can't take away any of these freedoms. So where that pops up in the community is you know, people creating plugins or themes, their software has to be licensed in a way that protects the user the same way that WordPress does. Because otherwise, GPL software would be highly exploitable because you could have you know, just a core, but all the useful functionality could be on add-ons that completely ignore the user freedoms. And that would sort of defeat the purpose. Um, for better or worse, the GPL is an older license. I think it was done like in 1990, 1991. I was you know, six or seven years old at the time. Um, so it was really created for a different world. It, it was, they didn't anticipate the web in a lot of ways, or, or how people distribute software and use software and things like that. So if you, if you try to, you can find ways around the wording of the license pretty easily. So it won't apply to you. But it, what's most interesting to me is just this, this idea of, you know, you get, you know, take a penny, leave a penny. <laughs> you get something wonderful for free that a lot of people have worked on. And whatever you build on it, you also give back so other people can build on what you've done. And that way you sort of have a very rich commons of this intellectual property that 
we all invest a lot in, but it's sort of a shared resource and gets better and better and better over time, better than any of us could ever do individually. Um, it's tricky, and it's one of those things that works in practice but not in theory because you can, you know, you can ask lots of questions like, why would anyone contribute to this? Why would, how do these communities survive? There's lots of things that come up, but they do. And that's where, to me, I, at the very beginning, I didn't really anticipate how, I didn't know anything about running an open source project. I probably didn't even understand open source as well as I do today. But once I experienced it, you know, like I talked about the Japanese story or other things, um, it's infectious because you're just part of something so much larger than yourself. And I find that very fulfilling. And I think that's honestly one of the reasons that a lot of people contribute because you really feel like you're part of something. How does that? What does that look like in terms of just general control? I mean, you say you've you've you know learned a lot of lessons about you know running an open source project, and it, it strikes me that that one of the um, one of the interesting parallels. I mean, if you look at running an open source project versus running a uh, you know a traditional uh, you know managerial organization, uh, is this idea of what you have control over and that which you have absolutely no control. Uh, does that resonate at all for you? Is it something you can share some thoughts on? Hmm. Um, no, not directly. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, I think it's a balance like anything else. I think that even in a hierarchical, you know, corporate setting, you might have the illusion of control, but really if all you have is a stick to motivate people, you're not going to get very much done. So I think in corporations, it works much the way that open source does, where you're motivating people by, you know, uh, sort of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Um, I think are the three principles uh, Dan Pink talks about in, in Drive. Um, you know, those things I think are pretty universal in people's work, whether it's for profit or for not. And and Matt, I mean, I just uh, I'm also curious, and I don't know if this is quite a follow up to Pete. I don't, maybe it's not, but clearly um, nobody I, understands my questions <laughs> today. <right? laughs> Pete, Pete made no sense at all. But let me try this one. Um, <laughs> in in uh, you know, I'm reading through your blogs or, or have been, and I just think, you know, wow, Matt is, a, a, you know, such a thoughtful person and, and such a uh, insightful person just in terms of the stuff that you put on. It's kind of random. I mean, you've got stuff, you've got quotes, amazing quotes, like inspirational kind of thoughts. You've got like random things that happen to you. You've got, uh, you know, just kind of an array of things that, that you put up on your blog. And I, I, I kind of, I read through it and I think, you know, I'm kind of curious because I'm probably just slightly older than you, Matt. But um, uh, do you think it's sort of a personality type that 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 uh, is is more willing to sort of share openly online? Do you think it's something that people have to kind of grow accustomed to, or do you think it's kind of do you think it's maybe in some sense generational that maybe you know uh, people who grew up uh, in a different generation are just maybe never going to quite uh, be as open and free with sharing themselves online as 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 a younger person might be. Yeah, I think that online is just, you know, people love communicating and telling their friends what's going on. And that's, you know, as old as humanity. So the fact that people are doing that through blogs or through Twitter or through these new mediums, I don't think is too unique. Um, I do see something generational, though, where the concept of it being online, this sort of public-private space at the same time where things are public, but you're kind of obscure, so... Like the whole world isn't at your door, but they could be tomorrow. And, you know, this sort right. of, it's an odd construct, um, you know, that probably is generational, whether you're comfortable with it or not. And, you know, a generation growing up 
on Facebook and you know with Friendster and all the other things, uh, I think is a lot more comfortable putting things online. You know, I remember 10, 15 years ago, you'd be a little scared about putting your credit card into your computer, and now it's we don't even think twice about it and do it probably you know, 10 times a week. So we don't, but our grandparents just... might. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even today, ultimately, the best bloggers uh, are just storytellers. Is really what it comes down to, and so. I think anyone who loves telling stories is going to make an excellent blogging candidate. That's a good point, actually. I, I heard, uh, uh, um, I think it's Heather Armstrong that, that does uh, the Deuce blog, had a really interesting uh, NPR interview a while ago that, where she talked about the difference between you know, journalists writing you know, for newspapers versus bloggers and, and how there's, you kind of have to get in a different gear to say, and along the lines of being a storyteller, um, but you have to be comfortable with the fact that there isn't sort of an editorial um, filter between what you're going to think and what you're going to, you know, publish. And and I still sort of, you know, I mean, I think, I think your your response to me was just made perfect sense that, that maybe there is a little bit of generational um, uh, influence, uh, but uh, but that there's not a new. Um, you know, there's not really like a, a sort of a new evolution of humanity here. There's just kind of a new way of sharing. I think that's yeah. Great. I'm usually pretty, I'm usually pretty skeptical when when someone suggests us something brand new because mm -hmm. we we don't really do brand new things that often. I think, I think you're we, right. We stopped doing brand new in in 1941. I think January <laughs> January everything that's, new changed. No, but it's a great point. Matt. It's a great point. Matt, I want to take it back to 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 focus a little bit on businesses and how you know how organizations are are communicating to their own publics who are the the you know as as you look at various sites and and implementations of wordpress who do you see who's really who's really doing it well as an organization really engaging their publics how how are you seeing this uh, hitting the mainstream hmm that's it. i don't honestly don't have a good answer for that because wordpress is used to power so many different types of websites now there's not really something intrinsic about using the tool that makes you better or worse at talking to your audience. Um, they're almost orthogonal. Hmm. That's interesting. I, you know, I'm, I, as, as someone who is, you know, working with organizations to, you know, to help install WordPress and actually build these communities, you know, we're seeing so much wonderful, um, uh, so many wonderful features built in to help you actually do just that. Um, I don't know if it's a bit of a surprise to me that you that you haven't seen one or that you haven't that you don't take have much notice of those that are really outstanding. And maybe I just take it for granted now. <laughs> <laughs> when it's in the blood, right? When it's in the blood. What you are on the record of saying that uh, you want to bring more social to WordPress in in the future. What does that look like? How is this? Uh, how's uh, what? What is the next big thing for WordPress, and how is it going to be different than allowing us to just build our own white labeled Facebook? Hmm. Well, I think the obvious thing is that you now have these sort of social reading platforms where people get and consume a lot of their content. So it just makes sense for your blog post to push to these. So you know, the two obvious examples of when you do a new blog post, it should post to your Facebook and it should post to your Twitter because that's where your friends are and so your content should be there too. The cool thing about this is that um, Twitter obviously has its, its limitations and Facebook doesn't want to host all your content. So when people see your links, they'll come back to your website, which is really nice because you want them engaging with you, if at all possible, on your domain, on some place where you can control and create a tailored user experience that isn't within the very narrow confines 
of what something like Facebook, Twitter, or really any social network gives you. Um, that's great. So that's sort of the obvious first pass. Um, in terms of using WordPress to power a social network itself, this is something we've been doing experimentation with, um, both on WordPress.com, with introducing new features around consuming content, um, and with a project we have called BuddyPress, which is basically a social layer you can put on top of WordPress, which adds all the traditional social network features, so like profiles, groups, instant me or private messaging, galleries, activity streams, all those sorts of good things. Um, I'm not really there. I think that it's interesting that we can allow anyone to run their own social network, and there's a lot of use cases for that. But in most cases, the utility of the social network comes from all your friends also being on it, um, at least until you know, we or someone else figures out a really cool distributed way of doing this, you're going to have economies of scale where, you know, we're all going to be on Facebook because we're all on Facebook. <laughs> right. um, and so that's, I don't see that changing in the short term as in the next two to three years. Um, in terms of what I think of, you know, like you have search engine optimization, you want social optimization. I think we're going to learn a lot of what's the best way to put your content into these platforms. Um, and when and how and you know how do you optimize your content for these different experiences because it's they're more contextual when someone's on especially for marketing because when people are in on something like a facebook they're not looking to buy something they have no intent like they do in a search engine they're browsing they're talking to friends they're looking at pictures of cute girls i mean how do you interact with that environment you have to approach it very differently that is a that's a, such a terrific comment. Um, I I particularly like this idea of the uh, the comment on the uh, you know the use of a social network. If if you are the only one using a fax machine, uh, suddenly the fax <laughs> utility of the fax machine uh, goes down fairly dramatically. Uh, this you know we're dealing with this. I'm seeing a lot of this in in uh, you know clients who are are moving from one social network to the next and realizing that portability is is a a fairly massive issue and i think it goes to this discussion of businesses who are trying to build their own you know networks how do you lure someone away to have a, a very narrow niche discussion on your own social network when all of these users are already on a network that meets all of their needs uh, and and yet what buddypress has done is really fascinating and i so wish more would more people would use it because it's great <laughs> it's such a great way to add to your site um you know one of the things that we do uh, each week on the show is is we talk about you know our favorite tools uh, uh, tool that we're using uh, that week to help build communication we thought you know of course this week we're going to be talking more about wordpress but thought we'd offer it to you uh, do you have a favorite tool or plugin that that uh, lays on top of wordpress that you um, uh, that you like knowing that you're someone who probably lives more in the core uh, than uh, <laughs> others it might, be, it might be inclined to uh, recommend <laughs> Akismat. <laughs> you might might be inclined, but is are, are there any out there that you uh, you really like to hang your hat on and would recommend others explore? I have been experimenting with more plugins lately. Um, some of them have been uh, so. There's I'll talk about the things that we don't build first. <laughs> there's a uh, there's this guy named Otto O T T O who I actually work with now. Um, he helps me with my site sometimes. Who who's written great plugins for connecting your blog to Facebook and Twitter and all these other places. So I've noticed just traffic on my own site has gone up a lot since I started using these sort of these auto publish tools. Um, so those I would definitely recommend. What are these? Uh, are auto publish? 
Uh, his name was Otto. So just oh, okay. if you look for O-T-T-O on the WordPress plugin directory, All right. you'll see a ton there. Um, the other ones, I have a lot of, especially business-wise, a lot of interest. And so uh, how my company, Automatic, has evolved is really to do maybe too many things. But we have a lot of different services, uh, including PolDaddy, Gizmet, VaultPress is the latest we just launched. But there's really too many to talk about. But if you go to Automatic.com, which is A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C, on the homepage there, um, there's actually a link to each of the services and a little haiku that describes each one. So... <laughs> I think if folks check <laughs> that out, cool. they would find some cool stuff. The top ones are, are sort of the, the commercial services like WordPress.com. And then there's a whole set at the bottom, which are not-for-profit or open-source projects, which we contribute to. Which are fantastic. And uh, I should say, as timely as it is, congrats on the launch of VaultPress. Uh, it, it is a oh, terrific, uh, terrific service. Do you want to uh, plug it just a little bit more detail? Yeah, basically the idea is that now that people are putting their entire website into WordPress, um, it, the security and backups of that become a lot more important. So uh, WordPress is very secure if you keep it up to date. But let's say you're on vacation and a new version is released, and there's, there's the possibility that while you're sipping Mai Tais on the beach, something could happen to your blog. So that's the first part of what VaultPress does is it, is it protects you. It keeps you up to date. It can push hot fixes. It scans your files regularly to see if anything untoward is happening. And then the second part is it keeps just the best backups in the world. So because it's sort of native to WordPress, it keeps real-time backups. So if you, you know, make a new post or a new comment comes in, it's backed up to the cloud seconds later. And the second part is they're just ridiculously redundant. I think we store 11 copies of every single file, every version of every file forever. So <laughs> it's sort of designed to be you know, nuclear-proof in, uh, in its architecture. It's just completely resilient to almost any types of failures. Right. It's, it, that's almost funny. <laughs> we store 11 copies of everything forever. Does anyone ever laugh at that? It I seems that, almost funny. That. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that's brilliant. Since we, since we built the service, I've actually been thinking about ways I can put more stuff into WordPress because then I know it'll be backed up because I'm not very good about backups on my own, on my own content or my own stuff. So now I know if I get into WordPress, at least it'll be safe. That's brilliant. Well, I'll tell you what, I, it's, a, it's just a real treat to have you on the show. And I, you know, as I say this to, about uh, uh, just what a treat it is to, to be a host on this show and be able to talk to people who do things that I am such a raving fan about. Uh, I've been a fan of WordPress for a, a very long time and, and plan on uh, continuing to develop for it in the future. And just really thank you to, to you and, and the whole team. It's, uh, it is a terrific platform. And thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. You know, I guess on a marketing show, the way that WordPress has always grown, we've never had any advertising or anything, but it's always just been one person at a time. It's, you know, happy users telling their friends, so I appreciate you doing that yourself. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Matt. Where would you like to send people who would like to learn more about you? My personal website is ma.tt, uh, no.com or anything like that, just ma.tt. Uh, WordPress.org obviously is the home of all things open source I contribute to and automatic, which I mentioned earlier, is all my commercial stuff. So those are the best places to go. What is the TT top level domain? <laughs> it's actually Trinidad and Tobago. Of course nice. it is. Trinidad <gasps> oh, and Tobago. That's absolutely brilliant. What a coup. Uh, Matt Mullenweg, founding developer of WordPress. Uh, we are uh, thrilled and honored to have you join us. And uh, uh, thanks from all of us at The Naked Marketers.
My pleasure. That Matt Mullenweg is, uh, uh, he's a nice guy. He just seems like a nice, doesn't he seem like just a nice uh, well, guy not, to you? Not, yes, he does. And not just a nice guy, but a smart guy and an insightful guy. Super and I would definitely in, encourage people to uh, check out his blog because- uh, It's awesome. You know, it, it's awesome. And you would think, hey, this is going to be a techno, like he's going to be programming and he's going to kind of be referencing stuff over your head. But not uh, at all. It's a, yeah, he's got Jay-Z as a reference and Thomas Jefferson and, and just everybody. Stuff. Everybody knows what stuff. they say about people who actually have both Jay-Z and Thomas Jefferson. I know the I, all the time. No, I don't. It Go actually ahead. speaks volumes. It speaks volumes louder <laughs> than words. Can I just tell you, I'm working on a project right now, and I, it's a it's a WordPress project, true to form. Of course. Uh, it is a uh, it's my very first uh, BuddyPress and uh, WordPress three uh, multi user or the WordPress three <gasps> network installation. I can't wait to see that. We are it's it is a great site. It's actually a migration of a Ning site. Now I've we've oh. I, I can't I don't know if we've talked about Ning before. Ning is kind of no, that white haven't. it's that white label um, um, Facebook kind of alternative where you can go set up your own social your own network. Community. And they have they used to be on kind of a freemium model where you could set up a free network uh, community and then uh, you know pay for add on services. And they have eliminated the free bit. So all these people who used to be on the free network are now looking for a free alternative to Ning. And uh, I, uh, one of my friends and clients is a, is a network that, uh, that is migrating away from Ning and into WordPress BuddyPress. And I'm telling you, it is abs- an absolute dream. There's a lot about it that's, that's you know, frustrating, which is just, you know, learning how, it, it, you know, how WordPress with the networked uh, sites works but buddy press in itself is really uh, brilliantly executed it's it, to hear matt talk about it it sounds almost more like a hobby uh, yeah. for, for wordpress i mean is that did you get that feeling yeah but i mean he's he's so understated about so many things that um you yeah. know it's hard to tell if it's that's just him being humble or if it really is kind of a, right. a side project yeah he didn't seem as enamored with the whole social platform pieces pieces you know, he was approaching it from a different place. It, he was saying, you know, how do you get your content onto these social platforms versus like we need to be a social platform, which I think was interesting. Exactly, which I think is really interesting, particularly when you look at the kind of the competitive space. And so it's it's so funny that, you know, BuddyPress is such an interesting alternative. And I think, you know, it's worth looking at other sites who have done it really well. I mean, if you look at, I believe pro.gigaohm.com is built on WordPress, MU, and BuddyPress. And and in terms of a marketing experience inside, you know, Giga, what GigaOhm does as its core product, it's a, it is a terrific really terrific execution of, um, you know, of this open platform and it's really worth checking out. So I've had a, a great time, uh, you know, working on, uh, on this, this network transition and look forward to launching it so we can talk more about it. Yeah. Well, that'll be fabulous. So we've, so that, uh, we've already sort of incorporated our tool. Because I know that's our tool, to right? And so we'll definitely look out auto in the, look for auto in the WordPress plugin develop directory. If you are, uh, if you are in WordPress and check out automatic uh, with two T's, actually three, three simple, total T's. Simple Twitter connect and simple Facebook connect. And I think I have use for both of those. Are those the auto? Soon. Those are the auto plugins. Those look to be yeah. fantastic. Excellent. So we should, we should uh, give those a shot. And um, uh, so, yeah, I think that's the, uh, that's a big, that's the big tool of the week. That is uh, WordPress. WordPress. <laughs> and we're what always else? looking for big tools, we're, not small tools. No, we like to really showcase big tools. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so what else do we have to criteria. talk about this week? What else do we have to talk about this week, people? Is this the end? I, this is like the end of the show. feels so, like the end. It feels I don't like know. the end. You know, uh, I just want to say for the record, we are ahead of schedule this week. 
So that's yay brilliant. Us. That doesn't that doesn't happen very often. Well, way to go, Megan. It's, it's nice not cracking to have to the scramble. Whip. Cracking the whip. I'm not cracking the Where, whip. I'm, tr- I'm just giving us a compliment. Megan, if, if, Pete and I will just talk about some inane <laughs> thing for 30 minutes straight and do it a week late. So thank you, Megan. It could. It could, it could happen that way. Where, Megan, if, if somebody would like to uh, actually have your whip cracked at them, where would they go? <laughs> Nothing? Was that okay? No? Anyone? Wow. She's uh is this okay. is is this thing on? <laughs> I know when Dane's doing the high. She's you know what? She's I funny. think I'm gonna wait a minute. Is it the uh well I'm at weekly at the back pages? <laughs> is that where? Am I right? So that yeah. would be that would be where.com? Okay. My my WordPress website is at encouraged.com, which is I-N-C-O-U-R-A-G-E-D.com. And I am on Twitter quite a bit at Megan Strand. And Dane, where would you like people to go for you? I uh, just, <laughs> I, I, you know what? I don't crack whips. Um, <laughs> I hope to offer that service soon. But if you go to strike10media.com, you'll see what services I do offer. Uh, it's a vast portfolio. <laughs> I know. I'm so excited to add whip cracking, though. <laughs> so we'll see. Excellent. Uh, and I am at, at Pete Wright on Twitter, and I am at fifthandmain.com uh, is my own website. About this show, you can always learn more at uh, thenakedmarketers.com, and you can find out more about us on the Twitter at Naked Markets. We encourage you to follow us there, and make sure you subscribe to the show in iTunes. It's free, and it's the absolute best way not to miss a single solitary episode of Naked Marketing Hilariousness. Uh, so thank you so much. On behalf of Megan and Dane, uh, I'm Pete Wright, and thanks for, for downloading and listening to uh, the latest episode of uh, The Naked Marketers.